Welcome to the Nashville Vineyard Podcast. For more information, please check us out at www.nashvillevineyard.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have a great day. We are, uh, we're going to continue in our series from James, and uh, we're going to read the scripture as we did last week, and uh, then we're going to begin to, uh, to go through it. So if you guys could, uh, could stand for the reading of God's word, that'd be wonderful. James 1, 19 through 26. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. All right. Thank you, Gloria. We're doing that every week as we're moving through the book of James. We're going to have, we're going to read the scriptures. You may be seated, and we're going to, uh, we're going to stand in, in honor and reverence for the Word of God, and and uh, we're just going to allow James to speak to us uh, by way of the Holy Spirit, and and just begin to form us uh, continually into the image of Jesus. It's been uh, a fun time already. Last week, if uh, if you missed it. Um, Feel free to go back and, and hit the podcast on that. We talked about how uh, there will be a time of suffering that believers will face and that we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be caught off guard. And, uh, and James tells us how that we can prepare to, to face the suffering as Christians. James was writing this book, and, and we're not terribly certain who it is, though most scholars believe that this is James, the brother of Jesus. And James is writing this book to, to the persecuted church that was scattered from Jerusalem. And he wrote this about uh, between 45 and 65 uh, AD. And it's interesting, you know, as we were talking last week, he, he's writing to a church that, that, that is far off, that, is, that has faced persecution, that has left everything, uh, been driven from their homes, been driven from their families, been driven from everything that they have. And he begins to start off by saying, hey, when you suffer, you should count it joy. And he's, and he's telling them that, that in this period of time, you're not experiencing the, the good stuff that you think uh, should come to you. And, and I was thinking about that this week because he, he picks up here and we're, we're continuing this, this thought that James has. And, you know, we often hark back to the, the early church, the first church. And, and, and if you're in church circles, if you're in uh, church long enough, you'll hear sort of this uh, almost a mysticism and a, and a yearning for the way things used to be. And it's really interesting here, uh, this is the church. These are the people that got to experience what we now sort of idealize as like, man, that was when it was great. And it was. And I can just imagine, like, these people came into almost a, a time of, of where they got to see what it was like, what, what the world would be like if, 
if the fall never happened, it says that they were, no one, no one needed anything. Everyone had everything in common, and, and they, uh, it's, it, it was a, just a good time. It was a good time to be the church. And that's how they came into the faith, which I, I begin to think a lot of these people came in during that wonderful season. And now here they are, and, and things aren't as good as they used to be. And so James is speaking to them, and he's saying, listen, I know that it seems off, I know that it seems wrong, I know that it seems different, but when you suffer, when you face trials, when you face persecutions, you need to learn to have a right perspective so you can count it joy. And he begins to go through that. We talked through that last week about how we begin to reframe and reshape our minds so that we can see that when the trials come, and that's the key, the key is, as Christians is we have to understand that there will be suffering. But we also have a hope that one day suffering will end. And, and a lot of times Christians don't know that suffering is sort of part of the whole deal. And when it happens, their faith is shaken and they, they find themselves in a precarious place. And so James is saying, don't be that. Here's how to look at things differently. And so this week he's picking up this thought with these people and he's saying, he's saying, listen, as you're suffering and as you're facing these trials and as you're facing persecution, as you're learning to, to look at things the right way as, as, you're, as you're retraining your mind in order to see how things should be through the perspective of eternity, he begins and he starts off and he says that, uh, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Remember we spoke last week that the whole point of what he was saying with trials and with persecution was that we would begin to reach a maturity. And he compared it to a smelting process where, where those trials will, will help shape us into a purified form, like gold. And so he's saying as you're on the way to this maturity, as you're suffering persecution and huddled in the corner afraid for your life, understand that during this time, as you're having this new outlook, you need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. You need to watch your anger. And I, I could imagine, just as I could before, that if I was one of them, if I was being persecuted, and not only if I was being persecuted, but if I had a memory of what things were like, if I had a memory of the good old days, a memory of what it used to be, and here, here I am, I'm being stripped of that, my family, people may have died. People may have been killed. Anger would be a familiar person that I would have a lot of communion with. I could see being angry quite a bit. And, and anger, I'm not sure if you've ever experienced it, just seems to rob everything. It seems, it seems to take over and it seems, it seems to do a work in us that doesn't produce the maturity and the righteousness that James was so keen on us understanding in, in the first part of his letter. Because anger, what it does is it, it turns us into bitter people. It turns us into violent people. It turns us into the opposite of gold. And, and he's speaking to these people and he's saying that, that you have to be careful. Now, I'm really glad he said that you should never get, he didn't say you should never get angry. That makes me feel good. Because as I'm fasting, I'm learning that anger is something I have. I'm going, oh, Jesus, there's new sins that you're showing me in my life, and they all seem to revolve around anger. You should ask Sarah about it after this. She's experienced it. 
there's a new level of hangry. And so he didn't say that we can never be angry, which is good. I mean, there's a time and a season for, for righteous indignation and, and anger and, and all of that. But what he says is, he says that we have to be careful in this process of not to jump too quickly to anger. Because you know what anger is? Anger is a knee-jerk reaction. It's just, it's just where we go. And when we're wronged and when we face trials, when we face hurt, when things don't go the way that we want, we resort to anger. That's where, that's where we live. Because really what we're angry about is that we can't control things. Things have gotten out of our control, and we feel like sometimes if we let anger do the work that we can get things back in control. I think about like, like raising my kids that, you know, I, I, I typically think that if I get angry, they'll listen. But what my, my youngest has taught me is that actually when I get angry, so does he. And he bows up, and it just doesn't work. And so I'm learning, maybe anger doesn't solve the problems. And this is what James is telling us, is that we're facing persecution, we're facing trials. When things aren't going our way, we need to be slow. Slow in anger, because what happens is, is that if we let anger arise, we become quick to speak. We'll use our words, and our, our words will begin to be weapons. And that's just the opposite of what Jesus lived and taught. It's the opposite of what Christians believe. We believe that actually our words can be healing tools. That there is power in the declarations that we speak as believers because we're made in the image of a God who spoke everything into existence. And so a mature Christian sees the words that they say and understands the weight that they carry. An immature Christian gets angry and spouts off and doesn't doesn't understand the power that the words possess. I mean, we, we've heard sticks and stones can break our bones, but words can never hurt us. But I, I don't know many people in years of therapy for skinning their knee, but for the wounds that are inflicted by words, people that we thought loved and cared for us. Words are powerful. And James is telling these Christians, look, I get it. It's not that you can't be angry, but you have to, you have to really be patient. You have, to, you have to be patient with expressing your anger because your anger can completely thwart the whole purpose, everything that's going on. And he says that it doesn't produce righteousness. It doesn't produce maturity. And he's already told us that the goal of the, of the suffering, the goal of the trials for us can be a, a maturing process. But if we let anger get in, it robs us from that. And so he goes on and he says in verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. He says that since anger doesn't produce righteousness and, and since it robs us of everything, go ahead and get rid of all of that stuff, all of that junk. And here James is drawing a connection with maturity and purity. With, with, with Christ-likeness in thought and in action. He's saying, he's saying at a certain point, if righteousness is what you're seeking, then you're, you're going to need to begin to change and put away all filth and wickedness, all, all of the malice, all of the anger, all of the sin. And he's calling them in that time to be a people that are sinless and blameless, 
as much as they can be. In order to be mature within that scenario. Now, obviously, he knows that there's not a point where all of a sudden, boop, we're done with sin, and we get to move on. But what he's saying is that that's part of the process, is learning to lay those sins down, learning to, to turn from those, and continue to walk forward. This is crucial. And this is, this is something that's really interesting about the book of James, because we're people of grace, and we're a people that believe in the grace and the goodness of God with everything we have. And, and part of the reason we're that people is because we were, we were part of this reformation that happened, where there was a break, and they said, hey, it's by grace alone through faith alone. That's the only way that we can receive our salvation. And to this, James would say that's true. But salvation is not necessarily the end, it's the beginning. And so once we reach a point with saving faith in Jesus, we begin to move more and more towards the cross. And our sins and our afflictions and things just continue to need to be laid down so that we can continue to grow in maturity. And holiness has gotten a pretty bad rap. When you, when you hear holiness, you think of maybe people that don't have a lot of fun, people that are mad a lot, and, uh, and people that, that are full of judgment. But that's not necessarily the case. The word holiness just means to be different, other. And James is saying, like, as you're away from, from your people, as you're scattered, as you're alone, remember that you're different. Remember that, that you don't participate in what they participate in. Remember that if you want to lead and begin to, to produce righteousness, you actually have to begin to lay down the wickedness. And that starts with anger. We have to lay it down. And so he's reading this and he goes on and he, and he says to, to put away the wickedness and receive with meekness. And this word meekness is, is a synonym for humility and it's, it's to, to humble ourselves, to come before the Lord and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now it's interesting here, the, the word used for word in the Greek here is the word logos. Logos. And this is a kind of a loaded term. And if we begin to put our, our glasses on and begin to read through the cultural lenses that, that these people inhabited, we, we would see that this word is full of meaning. It's full of nuance. And James uses this word, and we translate it as word, and it can be translated as word. And what we can do is then say, okay, word equals Bible. That's what James is talking about. And, and it does, it does equal Bible, but remember, this is James, 40 to 65 years after uh, the ascension of Jesus, they didn't have the Bible, like we have. Um, they, didn't, they didn't have that for another 300 years or so. And so this word actually means something uh, more than just what we think of as the Bible. The word logos is used elsewhere. It's used in John 1, 1, and it says, in the beginning was the word. And that's the same word used. It's, it's logos. And in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God, and the logos was God. We have to understand that during that time, the word 
logos or logos was used by the Greek philosophers. This is written in Greek. And what it meant is, is they would sit around and they would say, what is the logos of life? What is, what is the logos that we're here? And logos became a term that, that meant purpose and meaning, the meaning of life. And so as the New Testament writers are, are using this language, they're using language that is full and pregnant with other meaning that we can miss due to a loss in translation. And so he's saying that, that John is saying, in the beginning was the word, was the logos. And the word was God. And it was with God in the beginning. The logos is Jesus. And so John is, is, is answering the philosophers. He's answering the questions of the day. And he's saying that, what is the logos? The logos is Jesus. The meaning of life is wrapped up and the purpose of life is embodied in a person and it's Jesus. He goes on to say in 1.14, he says, and the word became, the logos became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So it's without a doubt, John is saying that in the beginning was, was the purpose and meaning of life and it was Jesus. And everything is enwrapped in Jesus. Everything is encapsulated in Jesus. And so here we have John, or we have James picking up on this word as well. And he says that we should put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, logos, meaning Jesus, which is able to save your souls. It's there. There's only one way that we can be saved. And it's through Jesus. Now, Jesus is the word, and he's the embodiment. So this is not like we're throwing out the scriptures. We're saying what James is getting at is there's, it's, it's even more so than you think. Because what James is doing is he's taking us not just to principles, not just to rules, not just to best practices. He's taking us to a person. He's taking us to a relationship. And he's saying, listen... You, you have to be mature. You have to grow. You have to put away filth and wickedness. You have to begin to, to lay down sins. But if you try to do that on your own, it's not going to work. The only way that you can begin to do that is to humble yourself and, and make Jesus your Lord and begin to enter into a relationship with him so then you can receive it. And what you can receive can actually begin to save your souls. The word leads us, the scriptures lead us to an encounter with Jesus. And he's the embodiment of that. So he goes on and he says, in verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, if the Bible leads us to a person, and the person is Jesus, then this begins to make more sense to us. It begins to make more sense of what is James really getting at here? What, what is he doing? Where is he driving us? And he's saying, listen, listen, if, if you want to really understand how you can grow and how you can mature and, and how you can begin to put your faith into a practice that can withstand persecution, it has to go deeper than a religion and straight into a relationship. It's only through the person and works of Jesus can this be made possible. And it's what Jesus even says in the last, uh, in chapter 5 of John, and he says this to the Pharisees in 539, it says that you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Jesus is saying, look, 
the scriptures point to me. They point to Jesus. And when James says that we have to be hearers and doers of the word, that means that when we're in a relationship with Jesus, we have to begin to actually do what he tells us to do. That's part of the relationship. It's not good enough to just hear. It's not good enough just to have it implanted in us. It's not just good enough to do the things that, that, that are, are necessary to be a, a sort of a surface level relationship. You have to begin to move deeper into the relationship so that he begins to form you. So that he begins to do work in you. And so that when we approach the scriptures and, we, and the scriptures begin to lead us towards Jesus and when Jesus you know, gives us commands and, and tells us what to do most authoritatively through the scriptures, through the texts in the scriptures, then, then what the relationship calls for is for us to begin to act on that. In other words, it doesn't matter if you have all of this memorized if you're not doing it and not applying it. It just doesn't matter. He goes on, and he says in verse 22 that we have to be hearers and doers, otherwise we deceive ourselves. And then in 23 and 24, he says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word, again, that's logos, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. This is what James is saying. He's saying, listen, you know what Jesus said. You know what we talked about. Because James was their pastor. He, he pastored them in, in, in the church in Jerusalem before they were scattered, and he's writing them a letter. He says, listen, you've heard. And if you don't take, take that truth that you've heard, if you, if you don't apply what you're learning then it doesn't do you any good. It's never going to result in a fruit that produces righteousness, that produces maturity. And every time that there's a wind and a wave and a trouble, and every time something happens, you're going to lose it all again, and you're going to end up having to start over and over and over and over again, unless you start obeying the words that he tells you to do. That's what he, he, he doesn't want our sacrifices. He wants our obedience. And this is Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees. They missed the whole point. Because again, they were just trying to keep the letter, the letter of the written word. And what he's saying is, is that I want you to go deeper into a relationship. And that means you have to begin to listen and to begin to do what he says to do. You just have to. And he uses a metaphor of, of a mirror, and, and obviously they didn't have cameras. Uh, they weren't able to take selfies. They didn't even have selfie sticks. And, and so they didn't have a great idea of what they look like, you know, other than what other people told them, which may or may not be accurate. And so here are the people, and, and they're, you know, I don't know how often the thought crossed their mind, uh, but they just don't know what they look like. And they had some mirrors. They were pretty rare, and so, you know, there were a few around, and so sometimes they would go, and they would just stand and look, and the word here is to, is to begin to look intently, is what it says, to peer, to study, to really take time, to set aside a, a significant amount of time, and, and these people would go, and they would look, and they would study their, their face and their features, and then only to forget what they look like as soon as they 
turned away. And he's saying, what good is all that time that you spent? I mean, what, what difference does it make if, if you don't remember what you, what you look like? It's interesting uh, that James is using uh, this metaphor here of mirrors. I, I don't think it's an accident. Because part of the relationship that we have with Jesus and through the scriptures is that we, we get to see a reflection of ourselves. We get to see our sins. We get to see our shortcomings. And we also get to see who he's called us to be. We get to see a picture of what life could look like should we allow him to do his work in us. And so he's, he's leading us into a position where the scriptures begin to, to change and shape us. They begin to form us. And it's like a mirror. If we don't allow them to do that work, if we forget about it, if we don't put it into practice, then the question is, what was all that time? And so this isn't even necessarily for just casual followers of Jesus. He's saying that looks intently, that spends a lot of time, that takes a lot of time out of their lives, and, and maybe you have a quiet time, and maybe you, you go to church, and, and maybe you're doing all of the things, but if you're not allowing what you're learning in your head to take over and transform you, then he's saying that what good is all of that time that you're spending? We say it like this. We don't want to just be another Christian country club where you show up, we hang out, we get to know each other, and then you leave. What, what's the point? There's better country clubs with bathrooms that have heat. <laughs> what's the point of that? He's saying, listen, you're spending a lot of time, too much time, to not actually begin to do this stuff. To not actually begin to have this, this gospel begin to change you. I mean, there's way better places you could be on a Sunday unless by relationship you're being changed into the image of Christ. What's the point? That's what James is saying. It's not about rituals. It's not about doing anything. It's about allowing Jesus to be in relationship with you and to be submitted to him and his authority. It's the whole point. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. And he goes on and he says this. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law. Now, this is a different word. This isn't logos. He says, the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is interesting. Because he switches from logos and word and Jesus, and and he begins to use this idea of of the law, of the the perfect law. The law summed up in perfection, and that, that actually produces liberty. And so sometimes we think about laws and freedom and that the two don't mix. And we feel constrained by the things that Jesus tells us to stop doing. We feel like that's not very fair, that's, that's an encroachment of our freedom. And as a culture, there's, we're nothing but free. I mean, that's our highest value, is the value of an individual to be free. And so when we hear the word law, we immediately recoil and think, no. Not me. And it's interesting here that James is using this language of the law of liberty, of freedom. But law can't actually begin to bring freedom and liberty. 
Now he uses the perfect law, and, and he's, he's reminding them of the, of the law in the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, and the embodiment of that, the perfection of that, which is found at the cross in Jesus. And so he's carrying this Jesus thread throughout the whole scripture, but he's calling it the perfect law that begins to produce freedom. And so as we think about it, as we think about the, the scriptures, what we do, and we all do it, is we take a text and we say, I don't really like that text. I, I don't really, I don't like what that says. I think that maybe that's archaic. I think maybe that there's, there's something else going on here. And we sort of take one text and we put it aside, and then we take another text that we, we like. And we'll say, well, I, I like that text. So for instance, if we think about like sexuality, if we think about that you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, in, in our mindset right now, we think, man, that's constricting, that's, that's archaic, that's, uh, th that's just, it's just, it's just too much. I should be free to do, do what I want. But you understand, what if you lived in a culture and a time where, where the highest value wasn't the individual, but was the family? and you were protected by the family, and you were provided for by the family unit, and you were, you were surrounded by the family, you lived in relation to the family, everything related to the stability of that family. And so when you would hear, hey, no sex outside of marriage, you would say, well, yeah, you're right. Because this whole thing could crumble. And see, if we hear now, if we hear you should forgive your enemies, we like the sound of that. People that wrong you, you should forgive them. Don't, don't retaliate. And for us, we think, boy, that sounds good. So we'll take that one, and we'll leave the other one. But if you're in that culture, and potentially your family is being killed, you would hear that, and it would be offensive to you. How could you possibly not retaliate when they just killed my family? It's offensive, and you'd throw it out. And what James is saying here is, is that you've got it backwards. We don't get to come to this and decide which is applicable and which is not. We don't get to face it and, and say, well, we'll take this and we'll, and we'll take that and we'll leave that. It just doesn't work that way. We either have Jesus as our Lord or we don't. That's the point. And Jesus seemed to believe in the word. In fact, he was the word. He was the embodiment. And so the question isn't whether or not we agree with all the scripture or whether or not we think it's applicable. The question is, is, was Jesus real? Was he who he says he was? Did he die and did he raise from the dead? And if our answer to that is yes, then, then what we do is we say, okay, shape us. Change us. And we, we set aside our cultural lenses and we just allow him to do his work. And James is saying that as we progress, we have to begin to have those sins and those things fall away, period. And, and the, the sins that seem constricting now and offensive now are just as offensive as those things that we like for, for those people back then. It's just, it's just this day and age. We don't get to apply or raise our, our cultural lenses over the other. It's not fair. And Jesus is telling us, through the Holy Spirit, inspiring James, if I'm Lord, you have to change. Because a lot of times we have theories and we know the right answers and we know how Christians should think and believe, but rarely do those translate into to doing and to actions. And this is James, this is, this is the point here. 
He just went through this dissertation and, and how that we're supposed to face trials and how we're supposed to see them and, and that it's, it, brings, it brings out gold and, and, and it leads to maturity. He went through this whole talk in verses uh, 2 through 18 and, and he set everything up and then he says, so don't be angry and don't let it drive you to quick, careless speech. In other words, allow your knowledge to begin to transform your actions. Don't just hear this, do it. And he wraps it up in verse 26 and he puts a bow on it from the very beginning when he's talking about being slow to speak and he says that if anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And he's saying, listen, Remember when he was talking about being slow to speak? He's saying, listen, if you think that, that you're applying this and when you face trials, you, you actually begin to, you begin to come out and say things that are counter to what you say you believe, it's a good litmus test as to what's actually going on inside. What do we say when things go wrong? What words come out of our mouth when, when we're angry, when we're, when we're upset, when we're out of control, when things don't go our way? How, how, do we, how do we process that verbally? It's a really good indicator as to whether or not we're applying what we're learning, as whether or not we're being changed. Because James picks up, and he, and he picks up what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, where Jesus says, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? And this is it, for the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what James is picking up here is he's saying, listen, if you believe the things that I just told you in, in verses 2 through 18, that, that suffering and trials actually produce maturity and, and you can get on board with that, and then when you find yourself faced with suffering and trials and tribulation and, and, and you're, you're out of a job and you're out of work and, and, and you won't get healed and, and, and it's just nothing is going your way and you begin to say things that are counter to what you believe, then you need to understand that you have to go back. You have to go back because you're trusting something that's not Jesus. You're putting your, your faith and you're putting your, your devotion to something that's not Jesus because otherwise you would say, boy, this is hard, but I know it's leading to maturity. It's not a denial of what's going on. James isn't telling us to deny our, our circumstances. He's saying, listen, you want to know if this is starting to take root in your life? When you're up against the wall, where do you go? When they come in and they begin to take your family away from you, as they did here, and they're dragging your wife and kids off, where do you go? That's a good way to know whether or not it's sinking in. Because we're going to face trials. You're, you're going to, to raise your hand for prayer for sickness, and unfortunately some won't get healed yet. You're going to lose a job. You're going to lose a spouse, lose a relationship. And, and you may encounter some, some people that say, boy, you should just believe for more and 
have faith and and maybe that's what you need and maybe it isn't. But the question is, is where do you go in that time? Where are you putting your trust and your faith? Where are you leaning on? Because that's the test. And we have to be challenged and we have to ask ourselves, is, is do we really believe this? Do we, do we really believe what we're doing? Do we really believe what we're saying? Do we believe what we're reading? Because if we say that we do and we're not changing, like fundamentally changing, if, if we're not becoming a, a new creation, if we're not living like we ought to, then the question is, where aren't you believing Jesus? Where aren't you trusting him? And if you just want to use this when things are good or when it's appropriate, it's just a waste of your time. Because at some point, we're all going to face a situation that's going to be outside of our control, and it's going to be bigger than we think. You know what's not in the Bible? God never gives us more than we can handle. It's just not in there. Sometimes trials will come, and it will knock us to the floor. But what he does give us is himself. He gives us Jesus. And when that happens and when we face those, if we're not turning to Jesus, the opportunity is we get to. We get to turn to him. And we get to lay everything down. And we get to become doers. And James isn't saying that there's a way that you can earn the favor, and that's the best part of this whole deal. Is that when we mess up, and we will, when you sin, and you will, and when you don't trust God, and, and you will, you won't trust him. He's just there. He's super faithful. And all you have to do is just say, okay, I'm sorry. Help me. It's like the best prayer you can ever pray is just help. You don't have to be articulate. You don't, you don't have to know exactly what you even need help for. You just know that something's not clicking because I'm panicking. I'm scared. I'm doubting. I, I'm, I'm full of fear. I, I, I don't trust you. Something's not clicking. Help. And by the way, that's the best part of this whole thing, of being together. There's a shared faith, a collective faith that we get to have for one another. And if we're really becoming a family, if we're really becoming uh, a body, if we're, if we're becoming people that love one another and we're relating to one another and we're, we're in relationship and, and we're meeting every week in, in everyone's houses and, and we're beginning to share everything, then, then when you're in that situation, what happens is that someone else can come around you and say, hey, don't worry about it. I've got your faith. I'm here. That's the beauty of the church. And so for today, that's sort of the call. Is that there, there are places in our lives we're not trusting Jesus. We're not allowing him to, to do his work. We're, we're, we're afraid, and because we're afraid, we're trying to handle it, we're trying to control it, we're trying to do everything that we know to do. And he's saying, hey, can you just, 
Can you just give it to me? Can you just trust me? And if we're honest, we say, no, I can't. And then he says, well, hey, why don't you go over here and have them pray for you and stand with you and share with them. And, and I bet they'll have a testimony of that time that I came through for them and they couldn't even believe it. And then what happens is we begin to understand and, we, and our faith begins to grow and we begin to say, oh, wow, okay, I, I can do this with Jesus. So we're going to have a time of worship. So if you could stand, what we're going to do during this time of worship is we're not necessarily going to sing. You can sing all you want. But the question is, is that what are we doing here today? Nothing happens by an accident. God is, is not unaware of where you are today. In fact, we very much believe that he led you here. And if you've been made new, then then you're what the scriptures call righteous and the steps of a righteous person are ordered and led. And so he knew you were going to be here and, and he knew that you were going to be here today. And so the question is why? Why did you want me here today? Is there something here in this message? Is there something in James that I'm supposed to get? That's our prayer right now with the Holy Spirit. Just allow him to search our hearts. Allow him to, to begin to bring to mind those places that we're not trusting him. We know what to do, we're just not doing it. The places of fear, of anxiety, those places that we go in our brain that just rocks everything. Allow him to bring those up. And then we're gonna have a time of ministry time. We're gonna have people that, that will come around you. You can come forward and I'll, I'll, I'll instruct you on what to do after the song. And, and during that time, the idea is that we just begin to, to repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm not trusting you. I'm sorry I'm not believing you. I'm sorry I'm not putting this into practice. Forgive me and would you help? And then those will gather around you and we'll pray over you and for you. And, and if there's anything else that you need, we, we'll pray for that too. And we have a couple of specific words that we feel like the Lord is wanting to do. And so we'll, I'll come back and we'll give those as well. But right now, during this time, just ask the Holy Spirit, please search me. It's better to find out now than when your back is against the wall. And he's allowing the opportunity. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you, we welcome you here. Would you search our hearts? We just invite you to do your work, what only you can do. Show us the places in our heart that we don't trust you. Show us the places in our heart that, that we're so fearful because we we have to be in control of that. We can give you the other things, but that thing, we're, we're not quite ready to let go yet. And Lord, you're so gracious that you're allowing us an opportunity to deal with it now instead of during the trial. And then would you help us to receive your burden and your yoke, which is easy, and trade ours, which is heavy. So would you come, Holy Spirit? For all upcoming events or more information about the Nashville Vineyard Church, please check us out at www.nashvillevineyard.org. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you have a great day.